Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, New International Version. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're continuing our series that we're calling The Complementary Attributes of God. With me in the studio is R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. We wanted to do this series to spend some time just thinking about God. As R.D. has said, knowing that the Bible is the Word of God doesn't mean nearly as much to us if we don't know who God really is. R.D., why did you decide to call the series The Complementary Attributes of God? Well, the central purpose at Anchored by Truth is always to focus on the logic, reason, and evidence that demonstrate that the Bible is God's Word, that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. So that's where we usually spend most of our time and attention. Now, one of the reasons that we do that is because it is from the Bible that we get our highest and best information about God's Word, about God Himself. You know, it's not enough just to know that the Bible is God's Word. We also must learn what the Word of God teaches us about God. The Bible is God's special revelation to mankind. It's God's special way of telling His people things that we need to know about Him. Fundamentally, the Bible is there to give us a revelation about God Himself. So we wanted to take a few episodes of Anchored by Truth and just focus on God Himself, and we're doing that by studying some of God's attributes. Now we've called this series The Complementary Attributes of God because we want to discuss the fact that while God is amazing in all of His individual attributes, It's how those attributes combine that help us to see the true beauty, the true majesty, the true magnificence of God himself. You know, theologians sometimes note that God is a simple being. By that, the theologians don't mean that God is simplistic in the sense that we can easily comprehend or readily understand God. No, God is so profound, we will spend all of eternity and never comprehend him comprehensively. But when theologians say that God is a simple being, 
They mean that God is not a composite being. He's not composed of one part love, three parts justice, four parts holiness. In other words, God is not like the cake that we bake, where all the ingredients lose their individual character and combine to form this one final product. Each attribute that God possesses, God possesses completely, perfectly, infinitely. So God is an entirely different kind of being than human beings are. And sometimes I think that because we become so familiar with God, especially with Jesus, we tend to forget that God is infinite and perfect in all of his attributes. God is altogether holy. God is altogether just. God is altogether omniscient. God is altogether omnipotent. So it can be said that God is his attributes, but we have to begin with a firm understanding that God is perfect, and so all of God's attributes display his perfection. So because God is perfect, all of God's attributes harmonize together perfectly. In other words, they complement one another perfectly. As a reminder, two words that are pronounced the same but are spelled differently are called heterographs. The words complementary with an I and complementary with an E are heterographs. Their pronunciation is the same, but they have different meanings. Complementary with an I can mean to express praise or admiration for someone or something, as in, you have a beautiful smile. Or complementary with an I can also mean to give something away for free, as in getting a complimentary donut if you buy a cup of coffee. Which I always endorse. (laughs) Of course you do. But complementary with an E means to combine two or more things together in such a way as to emphasize the qualities of each of those things or that the two things complete one another. A DVD and a DVD player are complementary goods. Using the two of them together fulfills the purpose for which they were designed. The title of this series is The Complementary Attributes of God, complementary spelled with an E, of course, because all of God's attributes work together in perfect harmony. Before we get too much deeper into our discussion of how God's attributes complement each other perfectly, let's listen to a meditation from Crystal C's book, Purposeful Prayers, on one of the most important of God's attributes, God's absolute sovereignty. It is popular today to view God as sort of a kindly grandfather, watching the activities of his children, applauding them when they do good, shaking his head ruefully when they mess up, always ready with a chocolate chip cookie and a hug to let them know he loves them. As appealing as this image is, it is not a faithful depiction of the God of the Bible. Among other things, it misses entirely one of the most important attributes of God, his royal sovereignty. Modern Christians have a tendency to gloss over or ignore God's sovereignty. First century Israelites were shocked to hear Jesus address God as his Father. They were comfortable with the notion of God as King and so conscious of his exalted status, they would not speak his personal name, Yahweh. They knew God as sovereign, but were unfamiliar with him as Father. Contemporary believers, by contrast, are perfectly comfortable calling God Father. But recognizing God as King and Sovereign seems out of place in these enlightened times. Frankly, it not only seems out of place, but also makes us decidedly uncomfortable. Whether it is comfortable for us or not, 
The principal way in which God is portrayed in the Bible is as a king seated on a throne. Images of God on the throne of heaven are found in both the Old and New Testaments. After his ascension, Jesus is spoken of as being seated at the right hand of the Father. Being seated at the right hand, the place of honor, is a description of royalty. In biblical times, petitioners appeared before the throne standing. Even counselors and advisors to the king would stand. The only ones who remained seated in the presence of the king were the members of the royal party. So when the Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand, it is affirming not only God's royal position, but also Jesus' own regal nature. God's sovereignty makes most of us very uncomfortable when we first learn about it, primarily because we are so accustomed to seeing ourselves as sovereign over our own lives. Encountering God's kingship is frustrating because it means we must yield our wills to someone else. Yet the more we meditate on God's sovereignty, the more comfortable we should become with it. God's sovereignty means we can pray with confidence for loved ones who show no interest in Christ, for children who are facing peer pressures, for families pressured by tough economic times, and for evangelists traveling in lands hostile to the gospel. If God were not sovereign, then Satan, politicians, tyrants, or wayward adolescents could overrule his decisions. Fortunately, they cannot, nor can we. The question for us is whether we will acknowledge our Heavenly Father's sovereignty and submit to His authority. Jesus set the example for us in the Garden of Gethsemane when He declared, Yet not my will, but yours be done. If He could surrender, so should we, knowing that the Father's love for us abides constantly as He exercises His sovereignty over us and all His creation. You know, we chose that meditation because it helps us set the stage for the set of God's attributes that we want to discuss today, which is God's exaltation, but also God's gentleness and humility. Now, at first glance, it might seem as though these attributes might be at odds with one another. You know, after all, when it comes to earthly rulers and leaders, you know, the powerful and the potentates, we almost never think of those people as being high and mighty, but simultaneously being humble and gentle. When we say that an earthly king or monarch is also humble or lowly in heart, if we were to say that, most people would just shake their heads in disbelief, because pretty much the most common experience we have in this earth with powerful, important, famous people, especially governmental leaders, especially monarchs and kings, Pretty much the most common experience we have with those kinds of people is that they are most definitely not humble or gentle or lowly in heart. Yet as our opening scriptures clearly tell us, that is exactly what the Bible says about God. Our second scripture, which is from the New International Version of Isaiah, chapter 6, says that the Lord is, quote, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the heavenly temple, unquote. Other versions say that the Lord is, quote, high and lifted up, unquote. This particular description of God comes from the portion of Isaiah, where Isaiah is about to receive his commission from God. In order to do that, God has given Isaiah a look into the heavenly throne room, which, interestingly enough, is located in a heavenly temple. Isaiah tells us that not only is God high and exalted, but also that God is so exalted that the train of his robe fills the entire temple. Yes, 
Now, this imagery is a little bit strange to most modern readers. When they read those lines in Isaiah that the train of God's robe fills the entire temple, that's not an image that we're that familiar with in our everyday experience. You know, the only time most people in Western cultures think about the train of a garment is the train on a bride's dress, or even more rarely, the train of a robe of a monarch, say someone like the Queen of England, when we see images of a royal ceremony, such as a coronation. Most of the leaders, especially in Western cultures, tend to dress typically much in the same fashion as what their general population wears. But this was definitely not true in the ancient Mideast. It was pretty easy to identify important people, especially rulers, by how they dressed. Rulers, kings, emperors, etc., they wore elaborate dress just about everywhere they went. And this was especially true at state functions. A king or an emperor would almost always have a very magnificently ornate robe, and that robe would always have a long train. And in general, the longer the train on the robe, the higher the official was. So when the Bible tells us that the train of God's robe, just the train, filled the temple, that's a way of making a statement about God's exalted and magnificent status. And the impression is reinforced by the observation that follows the description of the seraphim that Isaiah gives us following the description of the train. The verse tells us that God is so exalted that even angels, the seraphim, display the most profound expressions of respect and deference in God's presence. The holy angels are far more holy and powerful than human beings, but even they are supremely conscious of God's majesty. The fact that seraphim cover their feet with two of their wings is an expression of modesty. The seraphim cover their eyes because God is so magnificent they cannot bear to look at God directly. This whole scene is one of the most amazing descriptions of God's exalted status in the entire Bible, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's important to note that Isaiah, in that description in chapter 6, makes no attempt whatsoever to actually describe God himself. We get a vision of the scene and the setting. We even get a vision, if you will, of some of God's attire, the train of the robe filling the temple. Isaiah makes no attempt to actually describe the person of God. Now, this is quite likely because of what we learn in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. In those verses, Paul tells us that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. So the Apostle Paul tells us that God is so magnificent that in our human state, we can't see him, that he dwells in unapproachable light. But nevertheless, God did give the prophet Isaiah a vision, if you will, of God's throne room. The point of the scene out of Isaiah, and most scholars regard the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 as either being a theophany or a Christophany, those are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ on this earth, That vision is given to us so that we might have a very clear perception of just how glorious, magnificent, majestic, and exalted God actually is. But then our other opening scripture from Matthew gives us a description of Jesus that seems to be almost completely opposite. In Matthew, Jesus says of himself that he is, quote, gentle and humble in heart, unquote. Some translations use the term meek and lowly in heart. 
So we can easily sympathize with a new Christian who compares and contrasts these two different descriptions and walks away scratching their head. Yet as we have said throughout the series, God's attributes are never in conflict with one another. God's attributes always harmonize perfectly. God's attributes always complement one another perfectly. Right. And this is one of the reasons that it can be so important, so valuable to our spiritual growth and our spiritual development, not just to read Scripture, but to meditate on it. If we don't think carefully about what we've read, even when we're reading the Bible, we can miss some of the truly wonderful insights that the Bible gives us about the God we serve. Well, obviously you have some thoughts about how we can understand the harmony between these two seemingly disparate descriptions of attributes that God possesses. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see an undeniable declaration of God's exaltation, His unmatched majesty. In Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus, who is Himself God, describe Himself as being gentle, humble, and lowly in heart. How do these two descriptions show complementary attributes of God? Again, complementary with an E. Well, let's see what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 11 and what Jesus is not saying. Now, some translations of Matthew chapter 11 will use the term gentle for Jesus and some will use the term meek. Well, there is a tendency in our culture to equate the term meek with weak, but nothing could be more wrong-headed than to do that. One minister I heard said that the simple definition for meek is power under control. That seems to be a pretty important part of what you're saying. Exactly. Gentleness and meekness are not remotely similar to weakness. I mean, after all, even in our culture, we recognize that some of the toughest people we know, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs... I noticed you put the Army Rangers first. You're not biased, are you? Well, fair's fair. Anyway, even in our culture, military special operators and professional athletes and oil field roughnecks, truck drivers, whoever, you name it, these are very tough people physically. But you know, even these very tough people physically are very careful around their children, and they're especially careful around newborn babies. So just because these people can be extraordinarily tough in their jobs does not mean that these people are also not gentle and caring when they need to be. These very tough people know when to unleash their physical power, and they know when to restrain it. So we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that power and toughness can't coexist with gentleness and kindness even within us imperfect people. You know, and as a matter of fact, most of us would have far less regard for a tough person, a really tough person, if they weren't able to corral their power when that's necessary. Well, here you're talking about physical toughness versus physical gentleness. That's not exactly the same thing as exaltation versus being lowly in heart. Well, that's true. But I wanted to start with a very clear illustration of how even imperfect human beings can possess traits that are seemingly opposite one another. But those traits, even though they are seemingly opposite one another, do not have to conflict with one another. Even in imperfect human beings, seemingly opposite traits can be seen to be complementary. Well, if this can be true for imperfect human beings, it can certainly be true for a perfect God. 
So the same thing is true of the illustration that we were giving before about someone being physically tough, physically strong, but also gentle when necessary. That same thing can be true for people who are highly esteemed, who are exalted, if you will, but who also possess true humility. You know, we're all familiar with the very successful person who lets their success go to their head. But thankfully, we are also not as frequently seeing them, but we are also familiar with people who are extraordinarily successful, enormously successful, and famous in their careers, exalted in their own way. But when you meet those people in person, they are just super kind and gracious. You know, I've had the good fortune in my life to meet some very famous sports celebrities, some household names. But up close and personal, a lot of those people, maybe not as many as you might hope, but many of those people are just down-to-earth, humble people when you meet them in person. I know you don't like to drop names, but you once met with one of the most famous baseball pitchers of the 20th century in the home of his sports agent. He was just arriving from the airport where his agent had picked him up. Give us a quick version of that story. Well, one time I had the good fortune to meet a baseball pitcher, as you said, that I had seen on television for years. I mean, he was larger than life, and I don't like to drop names, so I'm not going to. But this particular gentleman was a Cy Young Award winner, best pitcher in baseball that year. And at one time, he held the record for the most consecutive innings that had been pitched in baseball history without allowing a run. So he was a very successful, very famous baseball pitcher. But when he came into the living room where I happened to be sitting, it just so happened he was carrying a bag of cookies that he had picked up in an airport shop. Well, as soon as the host introduced me to him, the first thing he did was to stick out his bag of cookies to me and said, Here, would you like a cookie? Did you accept? I did. It was a great cookie. At the time that he arrived in the living room, most of the seats were taken up. I was just going to give him my seat on the couch. He just kind of waved me off, and he just plopped down on a footstool. And then he offered everybody else a cookie out of his bag. And, I mean, within just a matter of a couple of minutes, he's talking to everybody in the room like he had known them his whole life. So if there was a guy who could have come into a room and had a reason to have the big head and play the big star, certainly it was him. But he wasn't. He wasn't that way at all. Complete opposite. Just friendly, kind, humble, just a real gentleman. You know, unfortunately, you just don't see that kind of greatness of spirit in very many people these days. So that's another point that we need to recognize about the interaction of exaltation and humility. Even though they are frequently divorced in human behavior, they don't have to be. It is possible to be extremely successful, famous even, and not act like you are. That's essentially an observation that would definitely apply to Jesus. Exactly. You know, Jesus was never in doubt about who he was or what he came to earth to do. We only have one episode in the Bible about Jesus' boyhood, and that's in the closing verses of Luke chapter 2. And I think most people remember the story. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast, as most Jews did if they were able to. The story occurred when Jesus was 12. And Luke tells us that as the traveling party from Jesus' village began returning home, his parents discovered that he was missing. And so once they discovered that he hadn't joined the traveling party to return to Nazareth, they immediately returned to Jerusalem to search for him. They were just concerned parents. Well, they found Jesus in the temple where it says that Jesus was conversing with the religious elite of the day. Now that itself is remarkable because in those days, kids were not tolerated, especially in places like the temple among gatherings of the religious elite. 
But the teachers of the law and the people who were gathered there were clearly amazed by Jesus, by his knowledge, by his wisdom. But of course, none of that was what was important to Mary and Joseph. They were just concerned about Jesus being missing from the traveling party because it had scared them so much. So when they said to him, son, why did you do this to us? Why did you give us this concern? Jesus just said, and I like the King James language here, Jesus just said, didn't you know that I have to be about my father's business? So Jesus, even from an early age, knew exactly who he was and what he came to do. As we heard in our meditation today, the most frequent way God is portrayed in the Bible is as a king. Both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with images of God as a king. Not just a king, but as the king of kings. God is the ultimate king of everything. But in a sense, that image of God as a king does not do God justice. The image of God as a king helps us understand God as sovereign, but there is some danger in thinking of God as just a more powerful kind of earthly ruler. God is so much more than that. Well, in our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue to explore more of God's attributes and continue to see how they enable us to truly understand what a great God we worship. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for encouragement for the celebration of Easter, the time when we remember that on Easter morning, Jesus rose out of a stone tomb, telling us that he rules not only the visible universe, but over death itself. Let's remember always to pray regularly for our nation and communities. The Bible assures us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of His faithful children. A Prayer for Easter Celebration Royal and Just Father, You are the author of grace. You are the one who saw man's dilemma before the tempter first came and who pronounced salvation's plan as soon as the fall was named. You are the God of perfect justice and unmerited mercy. You are the Father of our risen Lord. Today, O God, we celebrate that rising. Your angels were in the garden that morning before Mary and the other women approached the tomb. Well, they should have been, because Christ is their Lord as well as ours. The angels had announced his birth, and been forced to stand by as weak and sinful men stole his life. Surely it was right and just for them to be the first to see that he had indeed conquered death. Because the angels were the first to see redemption come full circle, they were then fully equipped to report the good news to those who loved Christ most and grieved so much. The women and the disciples then were the first of Adam's race to behold the circle's completion. In so doing, they formed the pattern for all who would follow. Yet today, every child of yours must grieve for their own sin and must realize that justly the wages of sin is death. Only when they have done so can the good news of Christ's resurrection produce spiritual life in them. For all who do, Like their Savior, this life can never again be taken from them. How perfect then was your plan, and how perfect its execution. Man fell, 
that you pronounced redemption. The angels eagerly watched and waited till all was in readiness. The Savior came into the world and in perfect obedience completed the work man had failed to do. Your justice was satisfied and your grace became manifest to the angels in the lives of the rebels. At Pentecost and today, your spirit seals your people as the final days of your eternal plan are irresistibly brought to completion. Today, we celebrate not just the day of Christ rising, but the entirety of a plan that keeps us in awe as we contemplate its scope and purpose. We are saved. The irrefutable evidence that we are saved is that our Savior is risen and today reigns at your right hand. Let our meals and celebration today remind us of the wedding feast of the Lamb that will one day be ours. We cannot magnify Christ too much, but as we have breath and life, we will continue to praise Him and glorify you. Christ taught us to pray, and we count it the greatest of blessings that we can do so in His glorious name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.